Hey, hey, what's up, everyone? My name is James Quick, and I'm a JavaScript developer, speaker, and teacher. Hi, I'm Amy Dutton, and I'm a senior UI UX designer and developer. Welcome to Compressed FM, a podcast about web design and development with a little bit of zest. Today's episode is all about James's website. We'll talk about his tech stack, some of the design decisions he's made, and everything in between. We'll also get into how he might do things differently if he were to rebuild it today. Web development and design, who would have guessed? Well, we can do them both, even at a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compressed. Today, we're joined by three great sponsors. Vercel is a great hosting platform. Pathwire will take care of all of your email needs. And Zeal is a software consultancy that is hiring. We'll talk more about each of these sponsors throughout the episode, but special thanks to our sponsors for helping make this podcast possible. James, how was your week? It's been good. I have been working on, I want to say website redesign, which part of it is design, but really a restructuring of being really intentional of what content goes in there. So I'm kind of having a lot of like meta moments with myself of thinking through that. And then last weekend, this weekend, last several weekends, my wife and I have still been playing golf. Got a little bit better. I got my lowest score, highest score, depending on how, my best score on the nine hole course in Memphis here. So that was pretty cool that I got to do that. So yeah, sitting around redesigning my website, playing golf. That's awesome. Amy, what have you been up to? So this weekend, we had a lemonade stand. My son (laughs) is in first grade. He's six years old. And they've been learning how to count money in school. And so he's just gotten in his head that he wanted to do a lemonade stand. So we did that yesterday. It was a lot of fun. We joked that we had social media marketing because we were taking (laughs) pictures and posting it to the neighborhood Facebook group. We had an investor. My sister (laughs) came and she just happened to have cash on her. So she was like helping break some of the larger bills that came through. And then one of my daughters was the cashier. Another one was the server. I'm not exactly sure what my job was. I was a graphic designer and the photographer. I helped make signs. And overall supporter. Yes, exactly. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. And they were giving us a hard time because we did accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay, (laughs) (laughs) which is like Lemonade Stand 2.0. That's right. And you know what? I've got a podcast that your son should listen to. They've got two really good episodes on freelancing, a part one and a part two. (laughs) And that just for anybody that's listening happens to be the podcast that you're listening to right now. So go and check those out if you want to know how to make not only a lemonade stand, but also make a lot of money from your lemonade stand. Yeah, I was so proud of him because one night at dinner, we were talking about gross and net and profit mm-hmm. and all these things. It just made my heart so happy. I'm like, he probably doesn't understand any of this. <laughs> but, just casual uh, dinner talk. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, well, let's get into it. James, you want to tell us a little bit more about jamesqquick.com and the tech stack behind it? Yeah, I think this is this is an important piece of background and context for a couple of different reasons. But I started really with my site on WordPress. And for me, I started web development in 2016 was the first time I'd ever written JavaScript and basically done any HTML and CSS. It was a really new thing. And I felt like I could get started with WordPress. And I really was just kind of nervous that I didn't know how to do all the things myself. I used a Divi, which is a visual builder. So I paid for that plugin and then was just drag and drop to set everything up. Had all the blog posts and things, obviously, in the WordPress database. Didn't know anything about SEO and any image optimization or like anything really. And I just, I was overwhelmed at the thought of doing my own website. So I started with WordPress and just wanted to mention that for people for a couple of different reasons. One, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Even as a seasoned 
developer, there's nothing wrong with using WordPress and certainly nothing wrong with doing that as you're new. And especially, we've talked about before, Amy, you've got a lot of background in doing freelance with WordPress. That's right. So you can also use that to be really lucrative in your career for doing freelance projects. So yeah, I started with WordPress. I was on WordPress for a couple of years. During that time, I was doing more and more tutorials, watching more courses online, watching more YouTube videos. And I kept hearing about Gatsby.js and Next.js. And these were things that I heard about on podcasts and on Twitter. And I didn't really know much about either one, but I kept hearing people building their blogs with Gatsby. And I had been learning React. Gatsby is a framework built on top of React. I'd been learning React, been practicing with that. I had had two years of experience, really just me learning through YouTube videos and online courses and figured maybe it was time to give it a shot to build my own site. So I started with Gatsby. It seemed to be, it was almost like a trend at the time. It's a little bit different now, but Every other day, someone else posted, oh, just migrated my site to Gatsby or just created my new site with Gatsby. It seemed like almost the default way to go at the time a couple of years ago. It seemed like everybody was doing that. Yeah, I was actually on that bandwagon. I tried to rebuild my site on Gatsby during that time as well for the exact same reason. <laughs> Very cool. So we just, I guess we, neither one of us are trendsetters. We just want to follow the trends maybe. <laughs> I think it's fine as long as you're on the front end of the trend. That's right. Yeah, we're still, we're still cool, I suppose. Early adopters. That's right. But I, yeah, I think for me, I had, I had seen so much about it. I figured I've been doing web development for a couple of years. Why don't I give this a shot? So I started with Gatsby and Gatsby is not just a static site generator, but it really is known for being a static site generator. So you saw the demos that people would do or the websites they were talking about. They were talking about blogs or landing sites, all that kind of stuff where you could have statically generated content. And for people that may not know what that is yet, this is the idea that instead of having a dynamic page for each of your blog posts and the way that works in the WordPress world, for example, is you go to a blog post in your browser, it sends a request to the server, server sends a request to a database, gets the information about the post and then sends that back in HTML. With Gatsby and statically generated sites, all of those pages are generated at build time. So I can run a Gatsby build. It will grab all the information from a data source. We'll talk about where I get that information in a second. It will bring all that stuff in at build time go ahead and generate all those pages. So if I have 50 blog posts, it's going to go ahead and generate 50 HTML pages and then have those ready to just be sent down directly to the user that is requesting them. So a couple of improvements right off the bat versus WordPress speed on the site. The, the site was much, much faster because of it being statically generated. I also didn't have to do any updates. I didn't have to update PHP or a WordPress installation. I didn't have to deploy a WordPress installation, which costs probably a few bucks a month. Not very much, but still has typically some costs associated with it. And then the developer experience for that was fantastic. Like I would just push code. It would get picked up automatically. We'll talk about being hosted in Netlify in a second, it would be picked up automatically and then go ahead and deploy. I didn't have to do like this WordPress migrate DB tool. Have you ever used that before yeah. to like move from yeah. local to prod? Well, the crazy thing with that plugin is you feel like you're always trying to keep things in sync. And so mm -hmm. I'd run into an issue where a client might update things on production, but they're not updated on my local machine. So trying to get that in sync or I might make changes and they said, oh, I don't see the changes on the site. It's like, oh, I've got to move everything over. So yeah, that is a hassle. The other benefit that I saw, at least when I moved my site over, was security. So one mm -hmm. thing you have to think about with WordPress is because the ecosystem is so large, a lot of people will target that for hacking. And they'll either use plugins to do that or themes. So you constantly have to make sure that all your files are up to date so that you're not targeted as part of one of those attacks. 
Yeah, it just was so much simpler. And I think as a developer, it made so much more sense because I got to a lot of limitations with Divi as a visual builder, as a tool. People can go and you can look that up and see what it looks like, but it's basically a visual builder for your site. And as a developer, when I wanted to change some things, I didn't want to have to figure out where those settings were in Divi. I just wanted to write the code because at that point, knew what I wanted to happen. I knew how to do it. I just had to figure out how to do it with their builder. So yeah, everything just overall experience, I think, was just so much better for me moving to Gatsby. And one of the really cool things about Gatsby, I mentioned it not primarily focused, but been really prevalent in the statically generated sites. But one of the big benefits of Gatsby is their plugin ecosystem. So anything that I wanted to add to my site, there was a plugin already there for it in Gatsby. I'm going through a redesign now, as we talked about. So I'm using different fonts, but I had Poppins as my main font. So I would pull that in from Google Fonts. At some points, I wanted to display YouTube videos. So there was a YouTube plugin. I wanted to have people subscribe to my newsletter, which is on MailChimp at the time. There was a plugin for that. And then also a plugin for RSS feed for my blog posts. And the reason for that was I ended up doing cross posting of my blog posts with Dev.2. And what you would do is you would take your RSS feed and give it to Dev.2 and they would listen to see when you ever created a new blog post, it would make a copy of it inside of Dev.2. And then that would allow you to basically have your post on a platform that had a bigger audience. I might not get much traffic directly to my site, but by cross posting it to Dev.2, I could get more traffic just from their general audience. And that was set up by having the RSS feed and it could kind of figure that stuff out automatically. So having all the plugins in Gatsby made all of those things so much easier because my nervousness of not knowing how to do all these individual things was eased by having the plugins do a lot of it for me. That's really great. I didn't even know that was possible with the RSS feed in Dev.2. Aha. I guess it marks one of them as canonical links. -hmm. Yeah, so they use canonical links and I have to make sure that I understand this fully. I used to think that it meant that traffic to the Dev.2 article would be considered traffic to mine, but it's not like in analytics, it's not that. It's the fact that reputation-wise, it's considered a link to my site. So if someone links to the Dev.2 article, it's considered a backlink instead to my site, which gives me more reputation. I think that's true. So somebody should also do some additional research into any of that. I knew one of the big things with marking links as canonical links is Google is against duplication. Basically, you don't want to have your website on multiple places or you don't want to have people stealing your content or whatever. They want to know the source of truth. Where does this ultimately live? And so with canonical links, you can say my website or really James's website is jamesqquick.com. And then it'll recognize that dev.2 is just a copy of that. Yep. So you don't want to lose Google juice over that. Google was actually penalizing people for having duplicate content. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the plugin ecosystem was huge. Setting up that RSS feed enabled me to do that cross-posting. And one of the things that's interesting about Gatsby is that it's very GraphQL focused. And if people have never seen or heard of GraphQL, it's, it's kind of a query language. And in theory, what it's supposed to replace is having to make multiple API calls to a backend to get different pieces of data. And GraphQL gives you the syntax to do it all in one request. And this was a new thing for me. I'd never done GraphQL before. So I was just kind of following tutorials on Gatsby on YouTube and that kind of thing to figure out how it works to go and get data and then display it in your applications and build those static pages, which was kind of a fun learning process. 
So one note for people that are interested, if you're looking to get into the Gatsby ecosystem, GraphQL is a big part of it. You don't have to use GraphQL. You can do things a different way, but most likely the documentation and the videos that you see of other people teaching you how to use it will use GraphQL. That's a learning curve that comes with it. But I would add for anybody that's just jumping in, they do have this WYSIWYG tool called graphical that will allow you to click on all the different pieces that you want to add to your queries and it will build those queries for you. So even though I understand GraphQL, I usually use that to help me generate the structure to make sure I'm spelling everything right and that it's in the right format. So it makes it a lot easier, especially if you're coming into a new language. Yeah, I would not have survived without Graphical as a tool (laughs) to figure out how to write these queries. Yeah. In particular, it's hosted in Netlify. And so I talked a little bit about the developer experience with this website. And I think the biggest part of that came from hosting. And this site, we mentioned earlier, the developer experience was I check in code, I push code to GitHub. The site in Netlify is connected to GitHub. So every time I push, Netlify realizes that code has been pushed. It runs a build to do those statically generated pages. And then I'd host it and I could use my custom domain, jamesqquick.com. And all that stuff was basically as easy as it could get, especially in comparison to something like WordPress, which I'd used before. And so that personal site is hosted in Netlify, but our compress.fm site is hosted with one of our amazing sponsors, which is Vercel. So Vercel is an awesome hosting platform that we use for our compress.fm site. You have that similar workflow where you check in code, you connect it to our GitHub repository. On every push, it's going to grab it, do a build, have it deployed for you in a few seconds. Vercel is really great regardless of what type of site you're running, whether it's e-commerce or travel or news or marketing, or it's an awesome website for a podcast like we have here. It also powers some really cool companies like Airbnb and Twilio. So go and check out Vercel as an amazing hosting platform option. And thank you for sponsoring. So as we're talking about the front end side, how did you manage all the data, all the blog posts that you're loading into your site? Yeah. So all of the tutorials that I saw to start, and I think what a lot of people did and continue to do is use embedded markdown files. So inside of your source code. So you would have a markdown file inside of your actual source code. It gets pushed to GitHub. It's part of your repository. And that markdown file would represent your blog post. So if people have written in markdown before for GitHub readmes or something like that, basically the exact same idea. With those, you can have a little bit of what's called front matter, which is some general metadata or information about your article at the top of your file. So it would be title and publish date and tags and URL or things like that. So general metadata. And so I did that at first where I had all of my blog posts or markdown files that were embedded in my repository. And I got to a point where I I just felt like I felt like my repository was bloated. I didn't necessarily like having all the markdown files there. It slowed down from checking into GitHub, but I felt like if I were to pull this repository on another computer, I didn't want to download all the markdown files. It just felt a little weird. It still worked really well, but I was starting to think maybe there's a better way for me personally to do this. I know a lot of people that will go with that setup because then they can just have people that see spelling issues or grammatical issues do a pull request to your repo. So you can have a reader that's really wants to your website to be right and go in and create that pull request for you so that you don't have to. And it is a good way to get readers and people that are following you involved. But as you said, it does bloat your repository. Yeah, that's actually a great point. I've had a few people reach out to me about hey, I saw an error on your thing, but it looks like you're not using markdown files anymore. 
and they would have gone and done the PR. And Gatsby's documentation is actually like that. So it's all from Markdown files and you can go in and make PRs. And I've done, I think two or three to Gatsby's documentations by doing PRs on GitHub too. So I do think that is, it's a really cool way to manage your content and have other people, like you said, be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And I do just want to, for anybody new to development that's listening, a PR stands for pull Mm. request. And so on GitHub, if you want to make a change to code, it's called forking, but you fork the GitHub repository. So that just means that you have your own copy on your machine it's a diversion, a fork. So you can make that change and then you can go back to the owner of the repository and say, Hey, I made a change. Would you like to pull? So you're making a pull request. Would you like to pull my change into your code base? And so they can at that point, either accept or reject your pull request. That's a great, I'm glad you caught us on the acronym because <laughs> we've got listeners. I'm assuming that are in all different ages of experience, not ages, but experience levels. So I think it's mm-hmm. important to call those out. And maybe, I don't know if we have this in our backlog or not, but a Get Basics episode, I think, would be useful in the future for people that are learning as well. Yeah. And anybody that wants to jump the gun, I'll do a quick plug. I do have a Git series on YouTube. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Doing plugs early today. Well deserved, though. <laughs> oh, Amy, I meant to tell you, I had watched one of your SVG videos uh, before, but I sat down a few nights ago and watched all of them and a few extra ones, including the hamburger button. So another shout out for Amy's YouTube channel. People should go and check it out for some awesome videos there. Thank you. All right. So I was working with embedded markdown files, decided to look for some other option. Headless CMSs were the hot new thing, still are the hot new thing, I think. And the idea with a headless CMS is you get something like a dashboard of some sort that you use for managing your content. And then you have your front end, which in this case was Gatsby, or the tool that builds your front end. And those are two completely separate things. They're relatively independent of each other. And the front end, my Gatsby application, would then grab information from the headless CMS to use that to build the individual blog post pages and that sort of stuff. So I posted on Twitter and asked what people's favorite headless CMS options were. And I got a lot of different ones that people have probably heard of and used. And then one that stood out to me because I was complaining about pricing, that it seems like there's this really huge jump from free tier to like a paid tier. And I was really nervous about that. And uh, a couple of people recommended Sanity and specifically based on pricing were calling out their pay as you go or a la carte options where you don't have to go from zero to a hundred dollars. You can go from zero to five or 10, depending on what exactly you need. And I really liked that. And I had a few people from Sanity, the company, either respond to me in that tweet or send me a DM to say, hey, here's a little bit of details. Also, if you have any other questions, let me know. And that really, really stuck out to me. That was really special, I think, to have that interaction from people directly from the company. So I decided to give Sanity a try and I started migrating all of my content. I guess this is only a little over a year ago because I was live streaming it. I was streaming the migration from embedded markdown files to Sanity. And someone from Sanity, Canute, who is one of my virtual friends who works in DevRel at Sanity, joined in the stream as a viewer, was answering questions and all that kind of stuff, which was great. And then eventually I got him to actually come on for a part, I think it was three or four, and actually do part of it live with me. So he was awesome in just supporting me in the chat with links and references, and then also actually joined me on my stream. So to have him be involved in that process made it so much easier and earned so much respect and trust from me for Sanity as a company and as a product. That's awesome. Yeah. So the compressed.fm website is on Sanity as well. We've both had fantastic experience in developing Insanity. And when we got ready to build the site, wanted to 
take that knowledge and put the compress.fm site on that stack as well. Yeah. So I think we have similar experiences or just similar products that we've used, which makes working on a product together really easy for us because I think we've got similar preferences from our experiences in the past. A couple of extra features that came with Sanity. There's kind of a live reloading mode when I'm in dev mode. So when I'm uh, writing locally, I can have it kind of auto reload with Sanity data as I edit it. And it will also show me content that isn't published. So I can actually see what content looks like before I publish it and have it go live on my actual site. So I thought that was really neat. And another thing I did was add a button inside of Sanity that will trigger a build of my site in Netlify. So with static sites, the content doesn't actually show on your page, on your website, until you do another build because it only gets created at build time. So anytime I publish content in Sanity, then I go and hit that build button, which will call to Netlify and have it do a complete rebuild of my site to have the latest stuff up and going on the site. Awesome. Have you done a lot of stuff with customizing your dashboard? Not a whole lot. I think that's important, though, to call out that one of the benefits of Sanity as a developer is you get full control over the dashboard. You actually get the source code for it, so you can customize it as much as you want. So the Netlify build button is, I think, a plugin I added. And then I also, at one point, was looking to automatically generate the cover images for my streams from Sanity. So I added a button and a little workflow inside of that editor to do that. I've since moved the intake of information for guests on my stream to Airtable. So Airtable kicks off that process and then copies over the data to Sanity so that it can get into my site. But yeah, I think that's a good call out is that was one of the benefits of looking at Sanity too, is just having that control as a developer. Yeah, I haven't done anything with their custom dashboards yet, but it's one of those things that I can waste hours of time just <laughs> looking at all their widgets and plugins that you can stick on there. Yeah, I think that's just kind of the life of a developer of having so many <laughs> things that we want to learn and be a part of and try out. Mm-hmm. So a couple of other features on the site, if you can consider these features. I have a subscribe on my site for my newsletter, something that's pretty common for people. At first, I was using MailChimp, and there's a MailChimp plugin. I think I mentioned that before with Gatsby, so you can get set up that way. Then I was doing ConvertKit because I was exploring using VertKit for my newsletter. And this is really popular with content creators out there, and I really struggled with ConvertKit. I didn't feel like the editor was that great. And at the same time that I was testing that out, I had started paying for Podia, which is where my courses are hosted. And with a paid Podia account, you get emails as well. So I figured if I was going to end up paying money for MailChimp or ConvertKit, why don't I just use Podia where I'm already paying the money? So I've got a newsletter subscription with Podia in my site now. And then I also, this is the one backend piece of functionality. I have a serverless function to handle uh, contact me. So sending an email. And this is in Netlify, you have the ability to host serverless functions. You create a directory, tell Netlify which directory it's in, and then you just write a function and it runs on Netlify servers, which is really, really neat. It's similar to the benefits that we get with our compressed FM site with Next.js and hosted on Vercel. So same general idea there. And for handling the contact email, it would basically take the information from the user, send that to the server, then that serverless function would use SendGrid to send emails or send that information to me in an email, and then I could follow up and respond to them from there. But that was a neat little piece of functionality to add to a static site, but using serverless functions to add a little bit of dynamic abilities. And so I was using SendGrid in that example, but I think we've got uh, a pretty awesome sponsor, Amy, that that you've had experience with in Pathwire that can handle those email transactions as well. That's right. Pathwire is one of our fantastic sponsors, and they 
kind of do the same thing and maybe a little bit more. They're the parent company of Mailgun and Mailjet. So if you need help sending emails, kind of like what James is talking about, they're great for that. They're also really good if you're trying to send a transactional email. So transactional email is if you're doing e-commerce and need to send out a receipt or an invoice. It's a little bit more personal, but definitely encourage you to check out Mailjet. They also have an email template builder. So you can either bring your own code or use MJML. They have a generous free plan that never expires. You don't have to enter in your credit card information to get started with them. And even better, they will let you send up to 6,000 emails per month or 200 emails per day. But one of their power features is actually being able to create these emails within a team setting. So you can have a dedicated space just for your team and you can invite team members and give them specific roles, be able to edit those emails and design them in real time. And that's perfect if you're working remotely. But special thanks to MailJet and Pathwire for sponsoring. Yeah, thank you. And that definitely sounds more power packed or functionality packed than what I did in mine. So it'd be really neat for people out there to take advantage of some of those features. Yeah. From what I've looked at and comparing those two services, the biggest thing is that Pathwire, Mailgun, and Mailjet, they also have these email template builders almost on steroids. They'll let you design your emails however you want. And I've had a lot of experience with MJML. I don't know if you've written emails with them, but it's like its own email coding language, which is awesome for anybody out there that's done custom emails. You're having to write a lot of inline styles. You feel like you're coding in the 1990s when we didn't have as many power features with CSS. So MJML makes that process a whole lot smoother because it's basically like writing emails with React components. And you can create your own React components and do whatever, but it will compile your email down into that HTML that you can send out. And I've actually gotten emails smaller by writing it through MJML than hand coding it, which is pretty cool. That's really neat. Yeah, I like the idea of the React components. I feel like so many things in the world, if you can make it similar to React components or actually use React components to build it, people people really buy in or at least web developers do. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, even going back, this is kind of going down a rabbit trail, but even going back to WordPress, where you were talking about starting mm. at the beginning, a lot of their stuff that they're doing right now with the Gutenberg editor is all done in React. So if you're out there and trying to figure out what tech to invest your time and intention to, React has its hands in so many different places that I really don't think you can go wrong in learning React. Even if you don't end up building, say, JavaScript applications, here we're talking about writing custom emails or even WordPress sites. React has its place in those ecosystems. And that is maybe a good transition into the last part of my website, which is the design and aesthetics. And so from a React perspective, I use something called React Awesome Reveal for basic animations in the sites, like a bounce effect and a fade in effect. And I just brought that up since you were talking about React because this is a specific React plugin that you can use that does what a lot of different things could do, right? Like writing animations, maybe not that difficult overall, but the fact that this thing was just ready for me to drop into React and I got components that I could use in the way that I'm used to doing it in React was really, really nice. Also use Font Awesome on my site for icons. So there's a couple of different packages that you can use to bring those in as well. And they are SVGs, so I can work with different sizes and I can change colors and that sort of stuff. But it's completely abstracted away from me. Again, if you want to learn about SVGs, go and check out Amy on YouTube. But just giving a couple of props of height, width, color, that sort of stuff to these components and have those display uh, was really nice because I don't really know where to go to get icons unless you do something custom. And I know there's a few different free places that you can get them, but I've always really enjoyed how much you can get from Font Awesome for free. 
And then from a CSS perspective, I'm kind of curious, Amy, what your favorite way to do CSS is. But I, I was using SCSS. And this gives, at the time, some features, especially that regular vanilla CSS, I'm doing this in quotes, didn't have. So the ability to nest different selectors, the ability to do mix-ins and mix-ins basically give you the ability to define something and then reuse it throughout your CSS. You can also do variables before those were really part of CSS. So at the time, the features for me that I seemed to get from SCSS were worth not doing vanilla CSS and just taking advantage of some of those organization benefits that came with it. Yeah, SAS is definitely my favorite. And the cool part about all that is I feel like SAS has pushed CSS further I don't feel like the language itself had changed a whole lot. But then SAS has pushed it further. And so now CSS is incorporating a lot of those features. You mentioned variables. And then I heard recently they're bringing in nesting, which is another big reason to use SAS. And you can do some of SAS's power features like loops and conditionals, but I don't use those a whole lot just because a lot of the developers I work with haven't necessarily seen that. So you're creating a more complex set of code that makes it harder to work with in the long run. Yeah. And I think to that point, people are probably more likely today than they were two or three years ago to just use what we're quoting as vanilla CSS because of the fact that some of those features have already been baked in. And I guess that kind of seems like the jQuery versus vanilla JavaScript. So jQuery early on had APIs that were really nice that JavaScript just didn't have. And JavaScript would recognize that and start to just bake those things into vanilla JavaScript, which kind of lessened the need for jQuery itself. So I think that's kind of similar to what we're seeing with CSS. And it's cool to see those tools push languages to next levels or just like, hey, people are really liking these. These are features we might should add. Well, and the nice thing about moving towards CSS is you don't have to have a compiler change or modify that code so that a browser can read it. So if you're using SAS or SCSS, so for anybody out there listening, it's basically the same thing. The only difference is how you write it. So SCSS is still called SAS, but it has semicolons at the end. It makes use of curly brackets. SAS, S-A-S-S, and that's just a different file extension. It makes use of spaces and indentation. Most of the time you'll see people use SAS, S-C-S-S, just because it looks so much similar to CSS and it's a lot easier to go in between the two. But if you're using either one, you have to have a compiler. The browser can't just read SAS. So the compiler will translate that into CSS. So it's just an extra step in your build process. 100%. I'm glad you remembered to bring that up. So yeah, getting rid of that step is a nice one with the stuff that's baked into CSS. The last thing I've got on design, and it's interesting when you go back and look at your website, how many different little things you use. But for my blog post, when I want to display code snippets, I wanted to get some of that nice highlighting that you see on different people's website. You probably noticed it before. Or maybe you'll notice it now after you've heard me talk about it. Uh, so I use the React Syntax Highlighter Package for displaying code. So again, another React-specific component that you can pull in from NPM and quickly display that code and have it look really, really nice. And speaking of designing really, really good websites, we've got a sponsor here in Zeal that does really amazing designs. Amy, do you want to tell us a little bit about Zeal? Yes. So I work for Zeal, but they are a software consultancy and we build most of our applications in Rails and React. I've worked for them for five and a half years, either as a contractor or now as full time. And I can honestly say it's the best company I've ever worked for. And good news for you, they are hiring, meaning you could work with me. So if you are a designer or a developer and looking for a new job, be sure to check out their website and the job listing. I'll include both in the show notes, but special thanks to Zeal for sponsoring. 
As we're wrapping up this talk about your stack on your website, James, what are some of the things that you would do differently? Yeah, I think it's always good to reflect back on that sort of stuff, especially in web. We always want to try out the latest and greatest thing and do something a little bit different. So I just want to say like my experience with Sanity as a headless CMS has been awesome. I don't want to move away from that, but I would be really interested to try out some other headless CMS options. So maybe just on a demo or something like that, or a different site, I'd be interested in trying some of those out. We had a lengthy discussion about CSS and SAS a second ago, and I would move away from that to either use styled components or Tailwind CSS. And styled components are (laughs) kind of controversial, this idea of CSS and JavaScript or CSS and JS, where you include your, you kind of mix your CSS into a JavaScript file But the beauty of that for me is with SCSS, we talked about before, some of the syntax there was very SAS specific. But if you do styled components to do some fancy things like change a color based on some sort of prop in React or based on some sort of JavaScript logic, you can still use the regular JavaScript that you're used to. So my thing is anytime I want to add a new tool, I want to learn as little new specific syntax as possible. So that's one of the reasons that style components has really stuck out to me. And then Tailwind CSS, we've talked about before, is a utility framework where you just get a bunch of utility classes and it gives you a design uh, framework, a structure to your site. And you just add in whatever you need, wherever you need it. And your HTML becomes a little bloated because you're adding all these classes, but it gives you a pretty good structure for your site. So I haven't decided which one of those I would do. I think I would probably go with styled components next time around. I think that would be a smart move. (laughs) <laughs> versus Tailwind. Controversial statement. Yeah, yeah, I've used both and I kind of go back and forth. There are moments where I'm like, oh, I absolutely love Tailwind. Why would I do anything else that's not on Tailwind? But then I go to styled components and I'm like, why would I do anything other than styled components? I'll throw this in there. Some of the benefits with, say, using Tailwind is if you're working with a team, you're all working from the same language or style guide. And since we're talking about your personal site, you're the only one that's going to be touching Mm -hmm. it. So you don't have to worry about different people naming things a different way. It's all you. One of the other benefits to using Tailwind is if you want to rip something out, you really grab the CSS with it. So a lot of times if you're making changes to a site, the CSS might stay behind just because you don't know what other pieces are touching that. So with Tailwind, because those classes, those utility classes are right on that HTML element, if you rip it out, you rip the CSS out, which is nice. It means that your code stays a lot cleaner. But if you're talking about React components, I found that usually those classes come with that React component. So you don't have that same problem if you're doing something that's in a more componentized ecosystem. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess... I guess styled components it is. <laughs> and I think I think that's what I was starting to lean towards. But it's nice that you have similar technologies that you would debate between as well. Yeah. And I mean, I still would reach for Tailwind in the right situation. Like I said, for teams, it's awesome because you're all working from the same language or even if you're working from a larger Rails code base. And that's not to say you can't build smaller projects with it. You totally can. And some of it's just different strokes for different folks. Absolutely. Speaking of different strokes, one other thing I might do is migrate from Gatsby to Next.js. Something I think, again, we have in common of really loving Next.js. So I would consider moving from Gatsby to Next.js just because that's where I spend a lot of my time now. Next.js has added lots of features in the last couple of years to support the static generation and a few other things that would be really nice to take advantage of. So those are a few of the things I would do differently. I'd love to hear from people if you're listening. What are some of the things you would change or what are some of the things you like about the stuff that I've got included in my tech stack for my personal site? 
as we start wrapping up here, we've got a few grab bag questions from people on Twitter. And the first one is from, I think it's Yoast. I think they've explained that to me before, but asked, can you just host the Sanity backend locally if you are the only one updating it or does Netlify run the build process too and it needs to be accessible online? So we kind of mentioned you have full control over it. You can deploy it yourself or you can use the managed dashboard that Sanity will host for you. When my site does a build inside of Netlify, it needs to be able to access all the data from Sanity and it can't access my local machine from Sanity, which means there has to be a Sanity dashboard out there on a public domain that Netlify can go in and get access to. So for that reason, no, I couldn't just host the Sanity backend locally. I would have to have a deployed version somewhere for Netlify to go and grab that information. And that's free if you're on their base level. Yeah, you can host it yourself if you want to, which I actually have deployed mine to a subdomain of my site, but you don't have to. So you can absolutely use their free one. A question from James Perkins. James Perkins is one of the biggest Next.js fans in the world. James asked, when are you moving to Next.js? Well, we kind of talked about that. That is a big possibility. That is maybe something that's coming soon. We'll see. We've got a question from Swizek Teller. How do you like Sanity as an authoring experience? It's been really great. You get, again, customization over what your models and data types look like. We can talk more about this when we talk about the tech stack behind my website, Self Teach Me, but I am running Sanity as well. And one of the reasons that I went with them is because they have portable text. And you can think about that as WYSIWYG editor on steroids. It allows you to do the basic document editing that you would get in a Google Doc, but you can also code and create and inject your own React components. So you're talking about React invading the ecosystem. This is another area where some React knowledge is very beneficial and just gives you that extra level of customization that you might be looking for. Yeah. And then on the front end, when you pull that data from Sanity, you have the ability to display it however you want. You can translate it to any kind of React component or just regular display. So it is really powerful. That is definitely something that I take advantage of on my site as well. So those are a few of the grab bag questions that we got on Twitter. And our last section here is our picks and our plugs where we pick something that we enjoy and want to share. And then we plug something of that we've created or done or want to share on top of it. So for my pick, it's a tripod with a selfie light. And I had gotten this originally to use as a selfie light in my office. And I ended up taking the selfie ring light off of the tripod and had it on just something else mounted somewhere. And then I realized that the tripod itself is the best tripod I've ever used. It's the most sturdy. It collapses, so it gets really small, so you can carry it around if you want to. I can use it as a selfie stick. It's a little heavy for a selfie stick, but I can mount a camera on it, hold it like really securely, not worry about the camera falling off. It's one of the best tripods that I've ever had, and it's small enough for you to carry around. So I actually recommended this to someone at work the other day who was asking about a portable tripod. And I was like, oh, you should just get the selfie light, and you can use the selfie light for whatever you want, and then use the tripod itself because it's the best. So that's my pick. We'll have a link to that in the show notes for you to go and check it out as well. And then my plug is going to be my YouTube channel. I've had a few videos recently that have done really well on topics around VS Code as an editor. So I've had a lot of fun creating content on VS Code. So you'll see some of that recently. I don't know when this episode will be released, but I will be doing a couple episodes on Svelte coming up as well, which I think will be fun. So anyway, James Q. Quick on YouTube. Awesome. My pick for the week is a box called Hunt a Killer. And this is Facebook marketing at its best. I found it on a Facebook ad and ended up buying it. It's probably about $30 a 
box and there's six boxes in a series. The way that it's usually structured or the ones that we've gone through is you'll have a task for each box and usually it's eliminate one person in your pool of suspects and then at the end you have to determine who the killer is. But it's a murder mystery and they're different. So we've actually gone through three series now, each with a different group of people, but it's been a lot of fun. Originally, I bought them just because I feel like we were binging on Netflix and TV all the time and wanted a different option for something to do in the evening, but we've ended up doing them with friends and it's been great. So we've really enjoyed those. I would highly recommend them and they're really well done. Like the design of them is really well done. The items that they send you, like sometimes you'll get say like a sock, but it's related to the mystery that you're trying to solve. That was really random. (laughs) We did get a sock. (laughs) The sock is interesting. And we talked a little bit before we started recording I literally told my wife last night that we should get a murder mystery box because I've never done one. So I'm definitely getting this after we get done with this call. They are super well done. The writing's good. The packaging is all really well designed. And this one in particular, there's a website component to it where it's like you're logging into the detective's computer and looking at their files. So they really put a lot of work behind them to make them good and my plug is my YouTube channel. So this should be released. I think I've talked about the last couple episodes, but I've been working on a new series for a custom audio player. And these are the players that are on the compressed.fm site. There was a lot that went into them to get the design just the way that I wanted it. And so explaining how they are designed and coded both with CSS and JavaScript. And then it's actually going to be several part series where we talk about abstracting some of the logic to create a custom hook package or When you have multiple players on a page, when you hit play on one player, how does it stop another player from playing? We go through all those things in this series. Love it. I can't wait to check that out myself. But those are our picks and plugs for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for watching. That's all we got. Perfect. I said watching. They don't watch this. (laughs) You want to do it again? I didn't even catch it. So thanks, everyone, for listening. That's all we got. You should totally leave that previous, like my comment, in too. (laughs) I will. (laughs) I will. Okay, stop.